You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, April 1st, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, my friends. How are you? Good, Good evening, Evan. Evan. Hello. Super. So is this the first time we're actually recording a show on April 1st? I think so. I think we would have remembered that if we did. I don't know. I would have forced myself to forget it. I hate <laughs> today. Today's the worst day of the year. <laughs> oh, come oh my on. God. Why? What's going on, Rebecca? In much the same way that St. Patrick's Day is amateur night for drinking, <laughs> April Fool's Day nice, is nice. amateur night for comedians. <laughs> for pranksters? Yeah. Pranks. You know what? Like 99.9% of pranks, not funny. Or it all interesting and it's it's gotten even worse in recent years because it's now become this day for corporate viral videos like what oh, yeah, corporation right. is going to win april fools today oh boy yeah did anybody experience a good prank today or hear about one no nothing no yeah, i got i got squat what the hell's that about didn't google try to say that they were taking youtube down they were going to cease youtube for the day or something that was a i'll admit that that was a funny video that's about all I heard. They said they were that YouTube was just a giant co- contest, and now they're ready to start sorting through all the submissions, and they'll announce a winner in ten years. <laughs> and they're taking <laughs> oh god, down. ten years would take them a lot longer than that, I would think. It was a pretty funny video. It turns out it's that cat that can talk. You know the one that was like, oh, someone goes, oh no, no, oh no, you know that one. I'd be okay with that as a winner. It w- it would definitely be a cat video. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just by odds alone. I don't like the ones where it's actually something that gets you really upset. Like, it's one thing, you could pull a prank that is just funny, but Steve, like, is a, is a douche for doing this where he'll pull a prank and it'll be like, <laughs> I'm moving out of the state. You know, that's not I funny. Did that, that once. Was, that was the Perry prank. <laughs> yeah, but it still sucked. It took me months to build up to that prank. Yeah, that wasn't a one day thing. That was a long. I totally got everybody. Perry was mad at me till the day he died for doing that prank. <laughs> <laughs> he, he never forgave you. Never. <laughs> now that's a prank worth good doing. Prank. That's good a good prank. one. You do something that pisses somebody <laughs> I, yeah. off for the rest of their days. That's a good prank. <laughs> yeah, I would. Okay. I would be together with Perry. We'd have lunch or dinner or something. He would be. This was years after that prank, and he would be like, "Evan, how are we gonna get that guy? We really gotta get that guy for having done that. Oh, doesn't it burn you up?" <laughs> he never let it go. He, and he never got me back unless he's somehow still alive, and that was the prank. <laughs> Best <laughs> prank ever. Oh, no. <laughs> that would be a Kaufman-esque. <laughs> All right, well. I avoided April Fool's Day in choosing this day in history uh, because I hate it so much. So the day that this podcast goes up is April 6th, and April 6th, 1992 marks the day that Isaac Asimov died at the age of 72 from complications of AIDS. Asimov is best known for his science fiction novels, but he may be quite beloved by our audience for being one of the founding members of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP, which these days goes by CSI. He was a brilliant man. Of course, he edited 
uh, or wrote nearly 500 books in his lifetime across a huge variety of disciplines, including a children's book and a nonfiction guide to Shakespeare. He was also a professor at Boston University, which I attended, though he was in the School of Medicine. And he died six years before I got there. At the time that I really got into Isaac Asimov, he was in this 20-year period where he was writing exclusively science books, nonfiction. He, you know, had written, he had written science fiction when he was younger. Then he took a hiatus to write nonfiction. He didn't come back to writing science fiction until later. So I knew him exclusively as a writer of nonfiction books until he started taking up writing fiction again. And then I got into the robot series and the, and the, uh, like, who's this new writer? The foundation series. He was awesome. The foundation series is still a classic of science fiction. I highly recommend it for anyone who's into hard science fiction. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I read it. I read it for the first time a couple of months ago, and, and I thought it was terrible. Oh, you're missing out. Just terrible. really unenjoyable. <laughs> really, Heinlein, way better. You're insane. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not contesting it. Is, are you going to say April Fools now, Rebecca? Yeah, no, no. Okay. This is 100 percent my true opinion. Let the hate mail come. <laughs> It it was just, it, I, you know, I, I didn't like it because it was just this really broad view of a universe with no, there's no feeling of place or culture or character. It really came across as what I later found out it was, which is a serialized collection of short stories that were originally just posted in a, a magazine. Oh, it was the story takes place over generations. Yeah, there's no no doubt. But you have to stick with it a little bit, first of all. And he does. I read the whole first book. Well, I mean, the second and third book books were much better. It just keeps getting better. And then he brings mm -hmm. it all the way back around to his robot series earlier. It's just great. He, you know, he connects up the whole timeline and everything. And it is what was different about it was that it took such a long view of history. It was about history. That's what the series was really about. And but there are enough characters that have continuity through the stories to hold your interest. Are there any women in the later books? Yeah, yeah. One of the primary characters is a female, although she is a robot. <laughs> but you know, she's indistinguishable from a human. Fembot. <laughs> And she is a, a heroine of of the later okay. novels. Yeah, absolutely. Because that was that was one of the annoying things about it. Well, I think what you're seeing is the difference between his earlier writings from like the 50s, and then he, when he picks up again in the 70s, it's He's more, a bit, more a bit more modern in yeah. that regard and in other regards. And that's when it really gets good. You know, his his end of the life his end of life science fiction writing was just epic. But yeah, if you're reading the stuff he wrote in the 1950s, you're probably gonna see it as a little dated in those respects. All right. Well, let's move on. Evan, you're going to tell us a scientific breakthrough that might totally resolve the, this enduring controversy and mystery over the fairy circles. If you'll recall, back in July of 2012, I had brought up a news item about fairy circles. Fairy circles are what the local population in Namibia call the mysterious circular-shaped patterns which appear by the thousands uh, in the desert grassland regions. Um, some people can't help but look at the pictures and think crop circles, right? Mm -hmm. However, when I first read the article, I couldn't help but think about a phenomenon known to skeptics as fairy rings. 
Fairy rings are growths of mushrooms, uh, which appear, or fungi, which appear to grow in a deliberately designed ring shape pattern. And fairy rings typically grow in these wooded or grassy locations. And according to various folklores dating back hundreds of years, these ring-shaped designs were deliberately designed by magical creatures such as fairies, elves, pixies, and Argonians. I threw that one in for all the Elder Scroll fans out there, by the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And supposedly, these uh, rings are portals or gateways to the magical realms. Although we might think that an enlightened people of the 21st century are well beyond believing in such fantasies, as skeptics, we know better than to overestimate people's grasp on reality sometimes. So, and scientists have been studying these fairy circles for some time. They were having a hard time figuring out the cause, but the mystery might have finally been solved. Because just a few days ago, LiveScience.com posted a follow-up on the story that they ran last summer. The news report states that a species of sand termite called Semotermis alocurus, and this sand termite could be behind the mysterious dirt rings. The study was published on March 28th in the journal Science. Part of what we talked about before had focused on prior studies suggesting that it might have been some kind of insect activity, perhaps ants, perhaps termites. Scientists from Germany measured the water content in the soil at the center of the circles, and they determined there was enough water in that soil to support uh, termites, even in the driest of seasons. The surveys also looked at the organ- other organisms found in the fairy circles, but the sand termite was the only creature found consistently at the majority of patches. Yeah, so they said consistently in the majority of patches, which means not in every patch. Right. So I think they're still hedging their bet a little bit here. Yeah, that's the impression that I got. Yeah. That this is pretty compelling evidence that the termites are a good candidate. They could be you know, eating the roots of the grasses and killing them off. They're definitely changing the soil. But I, I, I don't know. I'm not convinced by this evidence that the termites are not just living in these fairy circles. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they've really proven that they're creating the fairy circles. Right. And they're... The soil in fairy circles seems to be altered so that plants can't survive, whereas termites usually enrich the soil, I imagine, through their poop. Poop, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Which would make it more hospitable to plants. So there's still things to be figured out about these fairy circles. But the termites are present. They're the most commonly found creatures in these circles. So they are working along those lines of uh, going with the termites. Yeah, I mean, I know I've said this before, made this observation, but there's a few questions that we cover from time to time that essentially is a genuine scientific controversy where there's two schools of thought and they debate back and forth. And what I find a little annoying is that every time the mainstream media reports on a new study on one side of the debate or the other, they always talk as if it's settled. Like the debate's now over, this is the right answer. Meanwhile, it's just one in a long series of back and forths between the two sides, and it's a long way away from settling the debate. And I wonder if this really is fitting into that same mold, if we're just hearing about the pro-termite side, because they're the ones who published the latest study, you know? Right. Goddamn termitists. The termitists. (laughs) Big big insect is behind it, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Evan. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about published papers that disappear from the literature. Yeah, and I'm going to do it in a less boring way than you just implied. (laughs) So Stephen Lewandowski is an Australian psychologist who writes about and researches science denialism, amongst some other topics. 
The SGU audience may best know him for co-authoring the Debunking Handbook, which was a free PDF essentially about how to be a good skeptic and how to communicate facts to your audience and correct misconceptions. So last year, Lewandowski released a paper titled, NASA Faked the Moon Landing, Therefore Climate Science is a Hoax, An Anatomy of the Motivated Rejection of Science. This study used an anonymous survey of climate blog readers to show people who believe in an unregulated market that predicts whether or not they will deny global warming. They're more likely to deny global warming, uh, which isn't huge news. Um, but it also showed that people who deny global warming are also more likely to believe that the moon landing wasn't real and that the government and doctors are lying when they say smoking causes lung cancer. Uh, that the government created AIDS, other conspiracy theories like that. This isn't exactly groundbreaking in that we did discuss a study last year that showed uh, a similar sort of result about how people who believe in one cons- conspiracy theory tend to believe in many conspiracy theories. That one, uh, that study was called Dead and Alive Beliefs in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories. But uh, this study, the fact that it it included denial of global warming as a conspiracy theory was pretty uh, controversial, especially amongst the people who think that global warming is a giant hoax. Lewandowski's study has been replicated since it was first done, and it was officially published a few days ago in Psychological Science, but he released it last year, so it's been out there on the internet. What makes this study particularly interesting is the reaction to it, and also Lewandowski's reaction to the reaction. So obviously, climate change deniers were furious about the study, by and large. Many of them accused Lewandowski of purposefully fudging the data to fit his liberal bias, or they accused climate scientists and quote-unquote climate science believers of pretending to be denialists in order to take the survey and make them look crazy. So in other words, they were inventing new conspiracy theories to deny the results that showed that they were likely to be more drawn to conspiracy theories. And denial. Yes. Right. Lewandowski did not miss the irony of that, but instead of chuckling and moving on, he published another paper about that reaction to the first paper, this time titled Recursive Fury, Conspiracist Ideation in the Blogosphere in Response to Research on Conspiracist Ideation. And in that paper, he examines the reactions and points out that some of the denialist conspiracy theories included not just the original authors of the paper, but, and I quote, university executives, a media organization, and the Australian government. He tried to trace the various theories and determine how quickly they caught on amongst the, the other climate deniers. So the new paper was just published in February in Frontiers in Personality Science and Individual Differences. But now everything but the abstract has disappeared with no explanation as of this recording. Ivan Oransky, a blogger at Retraction Watch, which is retractionwatch.wordpress.com, asked the journal why it was removed, and the editor told him that there was going to be a meeting this week to find out, which is odd. Uh, Odder is that when... Paul Matthews of University of Nottingham asked them, he was told that it was taken down just for typesetting. 
So now people online are clamoring to find out what's going on, if the paper has been retracted, if it's been disappeared for good, if it's coming back. Particularly the climate change deniers are arguing that the paper should be disappeared for good because of a number of problems with it. Uh, some are arguing that Lewandowski has a conflict of interest because the second paper is specifically looking at critical responses to his own work. But to me, uh, the more interesting criticism they're bringing up is that they're man maintaining that Lewandowski conducted an experiment on subjects who did not consent to participate in that study, which may not seem like a big deal because he was dealing with blog posts and comments that were published and freely accessible. But then when you think about it, you realize that he actually names the bloggers that he discusses in the paper. And then he goes on to discuss as a psychologist in a psychology journal, those bloggers mental states. So I'd say that this one could at least be considered a gray area. And it's certainly exploding online with a lot of a lot of anger and frustration. Um, and, you know, the, the journal itself isn't helping things by you know, just making the uh, the entire paper magically disappear with no explanation. It's only feeding into probably more conspiracy theories about what's going right, on. Right. So it'll be really interesting to find out exactly what they're going to do and and if the paper's going to be retracted or not. It's yeah, it is interesting gray area. The uh, whole notion of transparency, first of all, but then also writing a you know publishing a paper naming people. But the, about things that they've made put in the public domain online, you know. Yeah. So when you put something in the public domain, you're basically surrendering any expectation of privacy. I think that is the standard, right? Well, I would agree with that, and that's why when I first read these accusations of consent, I didn't really give them much credence. But the fact that he is a psychologist commenting on their mental state well, that's and different. naming yeah. them by name, you know, yeah, like. Uh, the the fact that it's in a published paper in a psychological journal would imply that his summary of their mental state is accepted and complete, which I don't think is fair. So I, I feel like it would have been fine so long as he had made them anonymous. I, I, I think that right. that probably would have taken care of a lot of those criticisms. I mean, I think at the very least you could say it was perhaps unprofessional of him to speculate about the mental state of named people in a psychological paper. All right. Well, Bob, you're going to tell us about two of my favorite topics, zombies and parasites, all rolled <laughs> into one. Awesome. Nice. <laughs> Not only that, free will may have taken another hit with this uh, latest research. Oh, Ouch. boy. Uh, half, half of us may be zombies and not even know it. Oh. I know that sounds pretty cool, but I'm not talking about Walking Dead-style zombies. But the new research on parasites uh, that infect the brain or neuroparasitology conclude that up to 40% of people, 40% may have uh, parasites in their brain that at some level can actually control their behavior or as the Daily Telegraph puts it, zombie reprogramming. Oh, what? Of course, you you know you know there was a committee and they're like okay we need we need a, a nice little soundbite phrase that everyone's going to pick up on zombie reprogramming bam all over the place. So you're saying that that you could have what is it a bacteria what is it? These uh, it's a parasite they they hit your it's ride. Protozoan. 
Yeah, this is single cell, single cell protozoan. They're, they're, they're like parasites. Toxoplasmosis, right? Right, exactly. And I, I was going to talk about that. And uh, now how this can happen is that the brain, I wasn't really quite aware of this. The brain is actually very parasite friendly place when you consider that once you're there, you're pretty much protected from the full power of the immune system. So once they set up shop there, they, uh, they're relatively protected and you're in the brain. So you've got access to the mind. So it kind of makes sense that they will, that they can actually have some effect. And there's a lot of precedents for this too. One of my favorite examples, uh, from nature are worms that need to get into sheep's into sheep's guts to continue their their life cycle and reproduce. So the parasite actually takes over the ant brain and makes it climb to the tippy top of a blade of grass and just and just kind of hang out there and not do anything. And this is where the uh, the sheep will graze. And if it's eaten, then it gets ingested and it goes through and uh, and and that's how it reproduces. If the ant doesn't get eaten, then by the time the sun rises and it gets really strong, it'll just you know go down the um, the blade of grass, go about its business, and then the next the next day, it'll do the same thing until it gets eaten. Toxoplasmosis is another great example. I'm sure most people, you guys have heard of that, right? I mean, who hasn't heard of that? Yeah. This this is a, a single-celled parasite that needs to get into the stomach of cats. So to do that, it, it infects mice and it changes their brain so that they're not freaked out when they smell a cat. Instead, when they encounter a cat or cat urine, they react like it's a really hot female mouse and dopamine is released and uh, and they're not afraid of, of the cat at all. So they get eaten, bam, the uh, the parasite gets uh, into, the, into the digestion and finishes its, its life cycle. Now, the, the parasite infects people too, but instead of making us think cats are are really sexy. It, it, it may, according anyway to uh, Jaroslav Fleger, who's a professor of evolution and biology um, at the uh, Charles University in Prague, he says that it, he thinks uh, toxoplasmosis can cause people to be more re- reckless and risk-averse. So they actually, from his studies, he kind of showed that they get into more car accidents, for example. Uh, or you might th- these people might be more prone to uh, or a high, higher suicide risk just because they've got this, this parasitic infection. Can you get rid of it? Once you have it, I don't think that we have a way to get rid of it. Steve, have you ever heard of a way to get rid of toxoplasmosis? There are antibiotics to uh, treat toxoplasmosis, but generally it just uh, staves off the progression of the infection. It doesn't, it doesn't get rid of it. Uh, if you have AIDS, for example, and you have toxo, you may need to be on antibiotics for life. All right. Uh, but, Bob, are you sure that this doesn't explain the raging popularity of cat videos on YouTube? <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh Only my if God, you're that's funny! The poop of the cats that you're watching. <laughs> well, actually, uh, at least from the Flager's uh, studies, he said that um, infected men become introverted, suspicious, and more likely to wear rumpled old clothes. Wow! Uh, uh, see that one coming? Yeah, isn't it really? Uh, but infected women are just the opposite, apparently. In one study. He says they were usually well-dressed when they arrived at the lab or for interviews, uh, also more trusting and sociable. And if he's correct, all because they've got this parasitic brain infection. Now, this latest research um, shows that it might be related to uh, to the influenza virus itself. Bingman Toe University researchers infected 36 of their staff using their staff as, as controls. They they used a vaccine and that studied... That seems like an ethical problem. Yeah, but, it, but the results are cool. They studied their behavior before and after they got the shots, and they were really surprised what they found. The people became social animals, going from an average of a number of... Uh, you know, from social interactions of 54 a day to 101 a day, they, they doubled their interactions almost with, with people. But 
the time spent with each person went from 33 minutes to two and a half minutes. So it seems like the virus, if you want to interpret it this way, was making them see as many people as they can and uh, not for long, just enough time possibly to to, tra- to transmit this. And one researcher said, subjects who normally had very limited or simple social lives were suddenly deciding they needed to go out to bars or parties, uh, which of course would be a, a great way to pass this on. The more we learn about this, the more we can learn potentially uh, how to rewire ourselves in a sense and making make more effective psychiatric drugs. And I, I, of course, I can't help but extrapolate a little bit more and, and imagine designing parasites that can enhance attributes of, of humans, like making us smarter or more ambitious or, or perhaps uh, learn how to appreciate how good brains really taste. Interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, the, the toxoplasmosis thing is, is is really interesting. So first of oh, all, man. about a third of the of humanity on the planet is infected with toxoplasma. About thirty yeah. percent of people worldwide, and they show there's research now showing that it's associated with the development of schizophrenia. Wow! In fact, some people with schizophrenia may have it because of at least it might be triggered by right right toxoplasmosis. Um, also obsessive compulsive disorder. And what's in- really interesting is that some drugs which are typically used to treat schizophrenia, like haloperidol and Depakote, actually ha- have anti-toxo effects. So they may oh work, my God. quote unquote, work against schizophrenia because they're actually counteracting toxoplasma itself. And that may allow us to identify which patients with schizophrenia would respond to these drugs. How do we know uh, if somebody has the parasite? Is it the blood you can test? Measure it. You can measure it, yeah. Or or uh, CSF. But Steve, so, don't a lot of people have this? I mean, a lot of people have outdoor cancer. spinal fluid, Steve? Right? 30% yeah. of the population. Yeah, about. I heard 30% somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine that this is like actually dramatically increasing the rates of certain psychiatric diseases. That means one or two of us might have it. Yeah. I have, I've always assumed I had it. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just I had cats, it. Explain, explains a lot. I had cats growing up that were outdoor cats. That's why. I'm telling you, b- uh, bacteria, viruses, parasites, they rule the goddamn world. Wow, they sure do. Because they're tiny. And, uh, and us, yes. They are our overlords, apparently. Tiny and evil. That's why I love the science fiction weapons that are these big, powerful, like, guns and weapons. And it's like, no, a lot of these weapons in the future are going to be so tiny, you don't even know that they're there until you're completely overwhelmed and disassembled. Right. You know, go small. Don't go big. Yeah, I know. The super advanced alien invasion, you know, where they actually send, like, people-sized soldiers down to the Earth. Like, nah, they would just release the nanocloud and just convert us yeah. all. Yeah. We have Oof, no, right? We would have no chance, zero chance against them. All right. Um, well, unless you have it yourself, <laughs> but wouldn't the solar wind kind of? Push all <laughs> oh well, uh, we're not topic. there yet. Jay, uh, tell us. Talking about hacking ourselves, Jay's going to tell us how we're going to do that with genetic transistors. Ooh! In a paper recently published in the journal Science. Now, Steve, is that a good journal? Science. Yeah, I've heard yeah. of it. Just checking. It's so Wait. good they named an entire field of study after it. <laughs> so, but Jay, are you sure? Science- it's, are you sure it's a journal Science and not journal Science ish? <laughs> science-y. Gotta be careful. Yeah, science-y. So a paper science. that was recently published within the last week by a team at Stanford University outlines a system of ge- genetic transistors. I think I could mean? just stop right there. That's awesome. Genetic Thank you, Bob. Transistors. I was waiting for somebody to say something. Uh, but I want they, more. 
These genetic-like transistors that they came up with can be inserted into living cells and turned on and off if certain conditions are met. And this should be a major step forward in the emerging field of synthetic biology. So as most of you guys know, an existing transistor, the kind that we're already familiar with, is is the fundamental component for modern electronic devices. It was originally developed in the 1950s, and the transistor recreated the field of electronics and future computing potential. I mean, that was the beginning of all the devices that we have. In essence, the transistor allows us to have logic. In, in a computer, there's, there's three functions that a computer does. It, it performs logic, it saves data, and it recalls data. So the, the real heavy lifting, in my opinion, of course, is the logic part of it, is the processing part of, of it. So imagine, guys, that we'll be able to have some type of logic that's happening inside ourselves, inside our DNA. The researchers call their work transcriptors, and they will be able to do things like detecting toxins in the environment inside of a cell, determine the effectiveness of medications, monitor cancer cells. The potential applications are vast. Of course, if they really fully realize this and fully achieve it, but they, they've hit a milestone that they think is so significant that they put that paper out. So what, once the transistor determines the conditions or certain conditions are met, say, inside of a cell, it could then be used to make the cell do things. Like it could, one of the biggest things I would imagine it would be able to do is just give information to your doctor. Like this is what's happening on the cellular level. The, you know, the, the level of toxins have hit this, this marker. You know, then maybe the doctor can instruct the programming to do something, maybe to release other chemicals. Or, you know, how many cancer cells are you detecting? Things like that. That would I would imagine that would be the beginning of it. Yeah, so we're talking about more than just a transistor in, in the cell, though, right? You need more mechanisms surrounding it, more computer components than just a transistor, I would think. Yeah, I agree, Bob. I don't know how they're going to be communicating with it. I don't know if it's going to be on autopilot. I'm not quite sure of those details. Okay. Um, some of the information I got... They said that um, they, they use enzymes to control the flow of RNA proteins along a strand of DNA, and this is similar to a computer using transistors to control the flow of electrons, and that's why they're, they're calling these, these things, they're like transistors. Drew okay. Edney, a lead okay. researcher at the Stanford University of Engineering, said, we're going to be able to put computers into any living cell you want. We're not going to replace the silicon computer. We're going to, we're not going to replace your phone or your laptop, but we're going to get computing working in places where silicon would never work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool concept. I mean, you know, it's one of those technologies that again, it's very, just very difficult to extrapolate into the future to see how we're going to really make the best use of it. Um, it's, it's interesting, but almost pointless to speculate, you know, about. It can go in How so many different used, directions. Yeah. yeah, but uh, you know, any any way we have of interacting with the body, getting information from it, you know, closing that loop where we're reading information and then using that in order to do something at the cellular level has tremendous potential, but also obviously tremendous risks. Oh yeah, because like they talked about, for example, having these transistors inside cells, and then when they detect the conditions that indicate that the cell is a cancer cell, they will then trigger apoptosis. They basically give the kill command for the cell to cell kill death. itself. So you just basically instruct every cancer cell to kill themselves. But you know, obviously, if that uh, went slightly awry, you know, and every cell in your body decided hey, to kill itself, that would be that. That, that would be suboptimal. <laughs> <laughs> might look might look cool if it all happened at once, though. 
<laughs> Something from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the final right. scene. Ah. Man, Steve, you're definitely the doctor I want at my bedside. Well, <laughs> it's like, how to well, go, that doctor? was suboptimal, yeah. It was suboptimal. Suboptimal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is that why my guts are eating myself from the inside out? Note yes. the time, suboptimal. It's a little scary, too, right, guys? I mean, imagine. Yeah. You know, oh, we're gonna gosh, be- yes. Making these changes, weren't we just talking on the last show about how we, we're going to be merging with machines? You know, who knows if that's going to oh, happen? Yeah. It seems like it's going to happen. Are we talking about that on every show? It's happening. <laughs> what are you saying, Rebecca? All right. Well, one more quick news item. What do you guys think of this headline? This comes from Medical News Today, a generally decent medical news outlet. Their headline is 97% of UK doctors prescribe placebos. I find that very unlikely. I think there's a problem there. I'm all right with it. <laughs> Science Daily was a little bit better. They wrote 97% of UK doctors have given placebos to patients at least once. Okay, that's more believable, I think. What what kind of placebo though? There, uh, Bob, that's the that's the million dollar question right there. Yeah, come on. Yeah, what do you, what do you, how do you define prescribing placebo? So, this was a survey that was rigged to produce the the exact results that the that the authors wanted it to produce tried to maximize the uh the percentage of doctors who could be said to have ever prescribed placebos so that we suspect this is a way of saying well see so alternative practitioners who prescribe placebos are just doing the same thing that regular physicians are using uh right Wow. Oh, they're so clever. So clever. So here are what they (laughs) consider. So they divided placebos into pure placebo and impure placebo. Pure placebos are sugar pills. They are treatments that have zero physiological effect. Impure placebos are treatments that may have an effect but are being given for in uh, sub-therapeutic doses or for conditions for which they are not effective. But here's the list of what they considered to be impure placebos. Positive suggestions. So if you ever say anything positive to the patient, <laughs> what? That's, that, a, that's that's a placebo. Well, now I'm alarmed that the percentage is so low. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Who are the 3% yeah. who never said anything positive to a patient? Right. Those guys should be fired. <laughs> Nutritional yeah, so- supplements for conditions unlikely to benefit from this therapy. Uh, probiotics for diarrhea. Peppermint pills for pharyngitis. Uh, antibiotics for suspected viral infections, subclinical doses of otherwise effective therapies, off-label uses of potentially effective therapies, complementary alternative medicine. Ooh, see, that's <laughs> a good placebo. Conventional Ooh. medicines whose effectiveness is not evidence-based, diagnostic practices based on the patient's request or to calm the patient, such as non-essential physical examinations, non-essential technical examinations of the patient. So the few in there that were the most problematic for me, one was the, you know, the positive suggestions, really? That's use of a placebo. Off-label uses of potentially effective therapies. Off-label use has nothing to do with whether or not it's scientific. Companies, you know, the pharmaceutical companies usually only go for one or two indications for a drug. They're not going to spend the tens of millions of dollars it would take to get every possible indication. They only would do that, extend the indications for a drug if they thought it was going to expand their market. But if the evidence is there and doctors are already using it, they're not going to bother, you know, getting an FDA, a separate FDA indication for every little thing that the drug is used for. Yeah, I can't tell you how many of my friends in high school were on birth control pills for their acne. So yeah. that would have counted as a placebo? If it's off-label, you know, that's yeah. it. So I mean, it was at the time. 
And the other one is non-essential physical examination. So if I do a little bit more neurological exam than I absolutely need to based upon strict evidence-based criteria, just because it's part of the interaction with the patient, it's part of their visit, you know, they kind of expect a little bit of hands-on, that's a placebo. So anything that is just a normal part of the therapeutic relationship between the doctor and the patient, but that isn't a strictly evidence-based intervention, they're counting as a placebo. It's total nonsense. Oh they forgot to list tricorder readings on here. Yeah, I mean, it's just designed to maximize that number. Now, if you look at the real number, you know, how many physicians have prescribed actual placebos, the survey said it was 12% ever and only 1% on a regular basis, 1%. That's the real number. Survey said. 1% of UK doctors prescribe placebos. Not as good a headline. Well, they were, they were close. Not as good a headline as 97%. Yeah, it's almost a polar opposite. Right. That's Com- pathetic. It's a b- pathetic. <laughs> survey abuse. What are we going to uh, do about this? And every outlet that I can see lapped it up uncritically. Oh, except gosh, for these editors. Except for science-based medicine. Right? Oh, of They're course. The only ones who well, clearly. Showed what it was really going on. I would say these editors are suboptimal. Suboptimal. Yeah, I mean, they're just, they're just reprinting the press releases. So you could just put whatever propaganda you want into a press release and then it'll get propagated through the interwebs on, on science news sites. Propaganda propagation. All right. Well, Evan, you're going to get us up to date on who's that noisy. Last week we had a puzzle. Three scientists, Albert, Isaac, and Marie are talking to each other about a collection of scientific books owned by Jonas. Yes. Did you notice the pattern there with the names? Very very good. I I was hoping someone would. Albert says, Jonas has at least four books by Maxwell. Isaac says, no, he has less or fewer than four books by (laughs) Maxwell. (laughs) Marie says, according to me, Jonas has at least one book by Maxwell. If you know that only one of the three scientists is right, how many books by Maxwell does Jonas possess? Well, let's go through it. If Albert were to be right, at least, which he claims at least four, then Marie, who says at least one, would also be right. So you have to cross that one out. If Marie were right, at least one book, then Albert, at least four, or Isaac, less than four, got that. So Albert or Isaac would also have to be right. So you have to cross that option out, and therefore, it means only Isaac can be right when he says he has less, fewer than four books by Maxwell, and in fact, the number of books he owns is zero. So Isaac was correct. Very nice. That makes sense to everyone. Way to go, Isaac. Pretty straightforward. It was a relatively easy puzzle, and judging by the number of correct answers we got from our listeners, uh, that proved to be true. So good Jobs, everyone. Michael Willick is this week's winner for uh, getting the correct answer. Drawn randomly. So well done. You're in the final drawing at the end of the year. Well done. And what do you got for this week, Ed? I'm doing another logic puzzle. I've decided to make it a little bit more difficult, a little more challenging. Mark is visiting a psychic, the great Griftina. The (laughs) The great Griftina tells Mark to think of a number, one, two, or three. The great Griftina tells Mark that she will ask one question of him, and he must only reply with yes, no, or I don't know. So what one question should the great Griftina ask Mark to find out exactly which number Mark has chosen? I expect a lot of creative replies to this one. 
WTN at theskepticsguide.org or sguforums.com is our forum. And let us know. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thank you, Evan. You're welcome. Well, let's go on with our interview. We are joined now by Ian O'Neill. Ian, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi there, Steve. Thanks for having me on. And Ian is an astronomer with a PhD in solar physics. Cool. And he's also a science producer for Discovery News. And uh, Ian, you agreed to come on the show to talk to us tonight about the solar wind. Yes. So can you just start by telling us what the solar wind is? Um, in the most general term, the solar wind is just an outflow of particles from the sun. I mean, they go very, very fast. They're ions, so they're very, very highly charged particles. So it's not like the wind here on Earth, but it's certainly a wind nonetheless. It's a very steady outflow of particles, and these particles go all the way through the solar system, and they blast as far as we know. They they kind of expand in this in this bubble called the heliosphere. And uh, that extends to like over 120 astronomical units, which is like 120 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So basically, the solar wind takes up our entire solar system environment, and it's constantly blasting out from the Sun pretty fast. And there's actually two components to the solar wind, right? The fast solar wind and the slow solar wind. Yeah, the imaginatively termed fast and slow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, yeah, and, and this is it, all it is, it is as it. As it suggests, you know, there's one, there's a fast stream, which is, um, I forget the numbers entirely, but we're probably talking about 1.5 million miles per hour is the fast solar wind and under a million miles per hour for the slow solar wind. And they kind of interact in complex ways close to the surface of the sun. And as the earth, as the sun spins, it sends these two, uh, two components of the solar wind out and they interact out into interplanetary space. And we can detect, detect those interactions from earth. And in fact, they do actually affect the earth and they do affect the planets. And the solar wind in general does affect planets. And we can actually see those impacts down here on earth. How do they affect the planets? Well, for a start, the, the most obvious one for Earth is that the solar wind will interact with our uh, magnetospheres because our Earth has got this big magnetic field which covers the entire planet. And when any particles, any charged particles from the sun hit us, some of them are deflected away from the Earth. So the, so the Earth's magnetic field acts like a force field, this invisible force field. And if you get high intensity radiation coming from the sun, if you get lots of these particles hitting at the same time, they can funnel down into the poles of the earth and you will see these amazing aurora at high latitudes. So if you've seen those pictures like in Norway or Alaska and you see these green lights and, you know, amazing, uh, amazing light displays, really one of the most, I've actually seen it. I actually lived in the Arctic for a time and I actually saw oh, wow. this, these events. Oh, it was, it was incredible. Honestly, if you, in your lifetime, if you ever get a chance to go to, say, Norway or even Alaska, I mean, that's a bit closer to home if you're in the States, go and see it. And if you're lucky, you'll see a geomagnetic storm. And that's when the sun's magnetic field interacts in such a way with the Earth's magnetic field. You may get this amazing light display. And basically, it's just caused by charged particles coming from the sun getting funneled down into the atmosphere by the magnetic field of Earth. And it, basically, these particles just collide with our atmosphere and they generate different light depending on which which chemical components of our atmosphere they interact with. And that's what is the aurora. It's, it's an amazing sight. 
Hey, Ian, is it true that it makes noise? It can generate radio waves. And yes, you can detect quite high frequency waves. Um, you, not uh, sound waves, I don't think. I think there's um, there's an idea that it might in very, very intense um, geomagnetic storms. But I think that's... It, I think it's based on really eyewitness accounts that perhaps there was a co- coincidental noise with the uh, with the solar wind uh, hitting the atmosphere. But um, I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think there's uh, been any definitive study on that. Uh, Jay, Steve, do you guys remember seeing seeing that in Connecticut? Like, uh, like what, twenty years ago? It was actually so active that it was it came that far south. And I remember seeing those like green lights in the sky. It was it was amazing. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. When that can happen, I mean, during, during periods of really intense solar activity, and when you have, um, like transient events like coronal mass ejections and flares, um, that can kickstart these incredible displays. And depending on how powerful the impact is from, say, a coronal mass ejection, I mean, I can talk a bit more about them later. Um, when they, it almost acts like a magnetic punch. It will hit our, uh, magnetosphere and, Depending on how hard the punch, it depends on how deep these particles go. And so the deeper the particles go, the lower latitudes they can, they can hit. And, um, there's been all sorts of eyewitness accounts that, um, during extremely powerful, um, uh, events like this, you can actually read the newspaper at night because the, uh, the, the aurora is so spectacular and also occurring very close to the equator. So you know you're in for a big solar storm if you start seeing um, you know, these light displays over Washington State or something. That would be crazy. <laughs> so, so Ian, part of the reason why we wanted to, like, really uh, talk to an expert on the solar wind is last week we were chatting about um, these two guys from morethangravity.com. I know I sent you the link, who claim that the solar wind is what's pushing the planets around in their orbits. From my reading, it seemed to me that the primary vector of the particles in the solar wind was radial out from the sun, although I know it's more complicated than that. But tell us, what what's the bottom line? What is the path? What is the vector of the particles in the two components of the solar wind? <laughs> well, um, yeah, that theory is uh, very interesting. Um, <laughs> but with uh, with the solar wind, I mean, I think you just got to look at the scale of the solar wind. I mean, the solar wind... Uh, the media certainly likes to make it sound like this ferocious uh, tornado that's slamming into Earth. And it's certainly not that. I mean, we're talking about particles with a density of less than a puff of cigarette smoke. So we're not talking like this massive hurricane that's slamming into us and can actually have any measurable effect on our orbits. But as you said, yeah, the the solar wind is acting radially outward. And of course, when the sun rotates, it's kind of got this sprinkler effect. So if you imagine those, you know, spinning sprinklers in the middle of your lawn, they, the, the solar wind kind of goes out in that spiral fashion. And there's some complexity there as well, because as we already mentioned, you've got this fast and slow solar wind. So if you imagine when the sun's spinning, the fast solar wind will collide with the slow solar wind and it creates these um, these dense regions that can be measured by spacecraft near Earth. But I'm, I'm sorry, these events, they're all interesting on a scientific standpoint, but they can't have any measurable effect on the orbit of a planet. Um, right. I, I'm really clutching at straws. And I did do some research thinking, okay, what kind of force would the sun need to put out? And this, the sun would would have to go supernova, which it can't do, but it would have to blast out an awful lot more than the solar wind's got going at the right moment. <laughs> but the solar wind will have, does have a measurable effect 
on the path of uh, probes that we've sent out into the solar system? Uh, it, it's more, I think, the um, the radiation from the sun. So basically, the, okay. the sunlight can affect. Um, the path of uh, asteroids and it certainly affect the path of spacecraft. And of course, NASA and the Japanese Space Agency have put that to use. They've created these solar sails, these big, very lightweight spacecraft that can collect the, 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 the photons coming from, so basically the sunlight and it provide a, a push. I think there's been some, um, studies into using particles the solar wind particles as a means of traveling around the solar system. So using this gargantuan uh, solar sail to, to capture the, the energy from these particles. But I can't imagine it being particularly effective at small scales. But yeah, there would be a negligible effect. I mean, there probably is a measurable effect, but certainly nothing um, nothing major. Certainly nothing you'd have to correct your course for. Let's put it that way. Just to, to clarify one point, because I think this is where um, the authors of the More Than Gravity site, to me, it seems like they got confused. You spoke about the sprinkler effect and how the solar winds emerge from the sun in this spiral fashion. But the individual ions that make up the solar wind, their path is not curving around in a spiral, right? They're pretty much going straight out from the sun. Pretty much. Yeah, they're pretty much going out in a radial fashion, yes. And I mean, uh, obviously, we're talking about um, ions here. So they're electrically charged. So they will, um, they will interact very strongly with magnetic fields. And of course, the, the sun is the, the, the biggest uh, magnetic uh, field in the whole of the solar system. So they will right. travel along magnetic field lines. But generally speaking, yeah, they travel out. I mean, is, there's no real, um, I mean, you'll see on the picture, you can see that the magnetic field goes off in a spiral pattern. But yeah, the, 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 the individual particles are going outward. So. Yeah, right. So that's, so that's, that's basically where they were, they, and I, and some of our listeners, I think, were confused on this point as well, because if you see pictures of the magnetic field of the sun and the solar winds, it looks like there's this spiral structure to it, but that's just the density structure, right? That's not the individual particles. They're still flying out pretty much in a straight line from the sun. They are, yeah. And it's yeah. interesting. I mean, there's some great science to be done here because you, uh, if you if you could have a spacecraft that could look from from the top of the solar system, you could see the spiral pattern. If it has some sort of magic filter that could actually see these density um, density points, you should be able to see these um, very dense regions, which would be a spiral pattern. Because it's almost yes. like at these at these dense points, it's almost like you know a traffic jam for these particles all building up and forming shocks. So I mean, it's it's incredibly wonderful science and and the, the 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 instruments we've got on the ground and in space right now we're only just really beginning to understand how the solar system works but of course then you have the side effect where people get a little bit too excited and start interpreting science in a very strange way and then they yeah. start coming up with these weird theories so i think you just got to use some caution with some of these it, obviously yeah <laughs> some of these so any any force that the solar wind would put on something would be out away from the sun yes Yes, okay. yes, yeah. I couldn't imagine any force acting in apart from gravity. That's it. Right. Ian, would you say that their theory blows? My <laughs> God, it blows. Blows faster than the fast soda wind. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, that's fast. <laughs> yeah, maybe this is a silly question. Maybe I'm underestimating the size of coronal mass ejections, but it always seemed um, quite unlucky and a rare case for uh, a CME to actually hit the Earth because if you if you look at the Earth and the sun – I mean, Earth is 93 million miles away, super tiny. It'd be like hitting a, a bullseye as big as an atom. How? So my question is, how does a, a coronal mass ejection actually hit the Earth if it's so tiny and so far away? Yeah, it's, again, it's a sense of scale. I mean, um, 
you know, 360 degrees around the sun, you would think it's extremely rare. And it is kind of rare if you look at the number of CMEs the sun puts out. And we've actually got two spacecraft that, could, that are actually in orbit around the sun and they can see the far side of the sun. So the first time in human history, we've actually got a 360 degree view of the whole of the solar surface. That's now, cool. this is incredible because now we can actually know for sure how many CMEs the sun's putting out. And we know most of them are just fired out into space and they don't bother us. But you've got to remember with these CMEs, they are generated on a very discrete location on the solar surface in a, a region called the active region, you, generally where these um, magnetic fields all converge. And it's a very angry place where you, where you often <laughs> see sunspots as well. So where you see these like um, blotted areas, you'll see on um, lovely images from NASA's um, Solar Dynamics Observatory. That's the one of the newest uh, solar observatories, you'll see there's like little pock marks in the sun. And this is called um, an active region. And often around these regions will generate a coronal mass ejection. But these coronal mass ejections will ex- will explode from the surface of the sun. They will expand like a bubble. Um, and this bubble will ha- is just um, a massive bag of magnetic field. And it c- carries these high-energy particles from the surface of the sun in space. And it rapidly expands. I mean, this thing will blow up like a bubble and it will f- accelerate away from the surface of the sun. And this is a very active region, uh, active area of solar research because we don't fully understand the acceleration mechanisms. I mean, these are very basic questions that solar physicists have. And we don't really know how the solar wind is accelerated. We don't really know what triggers, um, uh, solar flares. We don't really know what causes the expansion and the and the very rapid acceleration of these coronal mass ejections either but with the scale of these coronal mass ejections they will blow up and they can get as wide as as the disk of the sun and that's how that's why it hits us these things can get huge so if you imagine it's almost like um a storm that starts off the size of a size of a pea and it will expand to across the size of a city um, and obviously, if it's coming out in our direction, it doesn't have to be a direct hit. And often they aren't direct hits. They're often glancing hits. And you will often hear NASA saying, okay, so Mars, Earth, and Jupiter is all going to get hit by the same coronal mass ejection. Okay. It's just because it takes up a massive area. It's amazing. You get enough hydrogen in one spot and all this complexity that... Are- and also, if you think, um, the sun is, you know, an average star. Everybody talks about it's an average star. It's actually a dwarf star. So there's uh, bigger monsters out there. And there's, uh, but they all operate, all stars operate by similar rules. I mean, our star is an average star. But we've actually got it as this laboratory, if you can imagine. We're actually sitting in the environment of a star. I mean, we often hold stars that are very high, um, you know, put them on the pedestal. But we are living right next to a star. I mean, and we've actually got this unprecedented um, means now of actually analyzing what goes on with this particular star that's on our doorstep. And then we can scale it up or down for other stars out there. But Ian, because we can see 360 degrees all the way around the sun now, so is there... a prediction can we time when these cmes are going to happen do we have a good clock on it oh that is the mid well the billion dollar question that's the thing um we've got a good idea about the cycles of the sun so we know when about these high intense periods of storms are going to happen and just so happens we're right in the middle of solar maximum right now and it's kind of a surprise because solar maximum isn't quite as dramatic as we thought it was going to be so the sun's still got a lot of surprises but as for individual events, obviously NASA and European Space Agency and other space agencies around the world, and also NOAA, everybody is looking at the sun to try and 
predict space weather. You always hear this term, and it's coming up a lot in politics now, and it's coming a lot be- coming around because we live in a very high uh, technology society, and we depend on electronics. And there's been a few isolated events over the last few decades where power grids have gone out or satellites have been knocked out because of the sun. So obviously, there's a lot of money riding on if we can predict these events and how we can avoid damage here on Earth. And a lot of money is being put into it. A lot of money is being put into actually looking at looking at these active regions and trying to guess and then predict and then actually put some sort of model to how um, and how and when these flaring events will happen and coronal mass ejections will happen. They're very similar, but they're not the same kind of event, flares and mass, coronal mass ejections. And we are getting somewhere. We're able to identify regions on the sun which are ripe for a flare. But sometimes it doesn't happen. It just disappears for no reason. But the ones that they have predicted, they've got it pretty good down to a pretty high level of precision as to when these things are going to blow. So, you know, I mean, I'd say we are 90% there actually having some kind of mechanism in place where we can say, all right, that that area is looking very angry. We should prepare for a flare or a coronal mass ejection. It's just the, the configuration of the magnetic field lines. We're able to actually see the magnetism roiling on the surface of the sun as well, which is incredible. So yeah, we are getting very close and there's a lot of money riding on it. Uh, Ian, let's change gears a little bit because you wrote an article recently about a topic that we discussed, and it'd be interesting to get an astronomer's view on this, uh, about the comet that may hit Mars in 2014 and whether or not this would be a good or bad thing. It would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, don't don't hold back. My God, can you imagine? I mean, yeah, you kind of got to feel sorry for like the rovers because obviously (laughs) Opportunity isn't going to come off very well because Opportunity is a solar-powered rover. So whatever the outcome, it's not going to be good with dust in the atmosphere and stuff. But can you imagine? I mean, this we already live in a golden age of astronomy. I mean, the stuff we are learning about the universe is just mind-blowing. I mean, I'm very privileged to be in the science media at this time because, I mean, uh, probably people have said this, all times through human history. But I think now we are, you know, we're sending robots to other planets. We are, um, we're on the verge of a big human movement in space, I hope. And, you know, we've got the technology now to actually analyze these events in great detail. And if you can imagine this, this comet colliding with a planetary body, not too dissimilar to Earth, not only will we be able to, um, understand what would happen when a, when a big comet hits a planet, a rocky planetary body. Um, but, it may actually, I, I wrote about this um, recently, I suddenly thought, well, wouldn't that motivate human exploration of Mars? Wouldn't it be amazing to send a manned expedition to a fresh impact crater by a comet on Mars? I mean, it, it's just, uh, and just for the oh wow factor. I mean, imagine just seeing that. We would almost be able to monitor it live. We've got eyes on the ground. We've got eyes in orbit around Mars. This is kind of a prime time. If Mars was going to get hit, this should be the time. Uh, I mean, obviously, bad news for the rovers, but Ultimately, <laughs> science, yay. I, I'd be, I'd be very keen to see that happen to Mars. Sorry, Mars, but rather, rather <laughs> Mars than us. <laughs> and, and sorry, probes on Mars. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It'd be, it'd be worth the loss of NASA equipment. Absolutely. To, and, and we, yeah. we got another Mars rover going up in 2020 anyway, so we don't need to worry too much about curiosity. <laughs> yeah, you actually said that it might affect Mars's uh, atmosphere and climate for a while. Yeah, um, I was, I was kind of thinking this through and, Although comets carry a lot of water ice and uh, and a lot of other material, we still don't really understand what 
material is in a comet? I mean, are they more rock than they are ice, or do they carry more methane than water? We don't really know. Um, but NASA was fairly upbeat that you know comets contain the majority of water, so it could be a great. Um, we could see a, a, a minor climatic change on Mars because Mars has got a very thin atmosphere. Um, if we were to um, say terraformed, imagine the sci-fi theory that we're able to terraform Mars, we'd need to thicken this atmosphere. So the solar system's already helping us out a little bit at a time by dropping a um, an ice-rich comet into into the Martian surface. So it, there could be some changes. I, I'm kind of dubious as to the, the scope of the change. I think we'd mainly just see a lot of dust in the atmosphere, but I don't know. I mean, it, it, it could thicken the atmosphere at least for a short period of time. Would that be a viable mechanism of terraforming just to steer a couple of dozen comets into Mars and then have the cumulative effect, add water and atmosphere to Mars? Yeah, I, I'd say so. I, that, if we were um, sufficiently advanced race, I'd say the first, things, first thing you need to do is go to the Oort cloud, which is approximately a light year away from the sun, this cloud that surrounds our solar system uh, is it's very hypothetical, but we, we pretty much know it should be out there. And it's like the, it's a huge population of these, uh, these comets that have been sitting there since the dawn of our solar system. If we can fire a few of them and be really precise and drop them onto Mars, absolutely, it would thicken the atmosphere. But then this was circles back to the sun. And the reason why Mars, it, Mars's atmosphere is so thin is partly due to the sun. Not only has Mars got a very weak magnetic field. So sorry, not only has it got a, a weaker a gravitational field than Earth, say, um, it also has, does for some reason, it doesn't have a global magnetic field. So it can't, it doesn't have this force field surrounding it like Earth does. So when the sun throws its uh, solar wind at it, uh, at Mars and hits it with uh, coronal mass ejections, it actually strips away the atmosphere into space. So any terraforming stuff that we do with mars temporary it would be a it'd be temporary yeah and unless we could you know become some kind of super all-powerful race of humans and somehow switch on its magnetic field again we, to be honest is mars will always be at the mercy of the sun so it'd be a very temporary fix that well we just have to turn on that alien machine they left behind on mars. <laughs> i know you right? think you get, get your ass to mars <laughs> wait <laughs> Hey, on, on that note, but Total Recall, the reboot, was such a letdown. I was so annoyed. I, I never even saw oh. it, so it's not worth seeing, yeah. huh? Oh, <laughs> it's all based on Earth. I mean, how can you have Total Recall just on Earth? That makes no sense. Uh, yeah, right. Well, Ian, it's been really fun talking with you. We appreciate you giving us your time. No, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ian. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. Yep. All right, Bob, See. Bob, you got to turn things around, man. Yeah, this is like my worst streak ever. Yeah. All right, here we go. Number one, a new study finds that wearing a special contact lens for even a single night can correct for loss of near vision in adults with presbyopia. Item number two, new research finds that most fame is not fleeting. People who become famous tend to stay famous for years or decades. And item number three, researchers analyzing the fossil record find that thousands of Pacific Island bird species went extinct following first contact with Europeans. Rebecca, go first. These are good. Special contact lens. 
I don't know what presbyopia is. Yeah, okay, I'll tell you what presbyopia is. So it is the, as people get into their 40s, typically they lose the ability to focus close up. It's just the, just the old age vision. Oh. Just the inability to focus near that develops with age. It's called presbyopia. Is that oh, okay. your muscles or your lens? Not, your lens becomes more rigid, right, Steve? Right. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> Very helpful. Because, yeah, because I, I, I can see that working then. If it's a case of your lens becoming more rigid, then maybe there's a contact lens that moistens it, and softens it, and makes it squishy. Grosses me out. Eyes gross yeah. me out. Uh, but... <laughs> That's really cool, and I hope it's true, And but it seems reasonable. Less reasonable is the idea that people who become famous tend to stay so for decades. I mean, that implies that most people stay famous for decades. So, and the, uh, I don't know, these days, I mean, so if it's for decades, this this is a study examining people from at least the late 90s. But yeah, I'd say that's about when we started getting to the point that that your 15 minutes of fame was becoming more and more true. So my common sense tells me that that's BS. I can think of many people whose star has dropped. But I mean, what is what what are they qualifying as famous? Because ding ding ding. Yeah, like I mean, if it's just the fact that I can remember these people still, then okay. But yeah, like a YouTube star that nobody cares about anymore could still get recognized at a bar. So if that's what it means, then it's dumb and pointless, but it could be true. Thousands of birds going extinct following the first contact with Europeans. That's the thing that seems really easy to believe at first blush for me, because I mean, thousands of species is a lot, but Europeans were really good at making things extinct. Uh, or at least Europeans rats were very good at it. Thousands is a lot. Yeah, because I, I think, and part of me, I'm, I'm pulling that whole, that one seems more reasonable to me. So I feel like that's actually going to be the fiction. So I'm going to go with the bird one. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I agreed with a lot that Rebecca said. Uh, the contact lens one at first blush, I was like, no effing way. But you have here special contact lens. Well, yeah. What the hell does that mean? That's, you know, special is uh, an annoying word. It can mean so many different things. Um, how awesome would that be, though? Because I'm, I'm, I've started to uh, take a, a hit in my vision just in the past couple of years. The fleeting fame one? Yeah. What the hell do you mean by famous? I mean, you you reach a certain level of fame, and then afterwards, you you never really recapture that level, but you're still recognizable. You have some level of fame, like Gary Coleman. I mean, he never had the, maintained the fame he had when he was a kid, but if you you know, saw him or heard of him or whatever, you you totally would recognize him and still say, yeah, he's kind of famous. What you talking about, Robert? Yeah. Oh, God. I guess somebody oh, had to say that. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just way too ambiguous. <laughs> it, it could, you know? So, let's see. And the third one, thousands seems like a lot. They were, surely, they were very efficient at uh, making animals extinct, but thousands is is a tremendous amount. And, I mean, that sounds like they wiped out wiped out every bird on these islands. You know, I, th- I think I'm going to go with the uh, the bird one as well. Okay, Evan? Is it okay if I take the bird one first and say that that one's the fiction? Go right ahead. Okay. Well, the bird one is the fiction. You're not supposed <laughs> to do that. <laughs> he can sound confident. It's fine. I think the issue here is the part about following first contact with Europeans. There were people on these islands well before Europeans, a long time before Europeans. I mean, 
you know, populations of people. And I'm sure that they were perhaps really the cause of a lot of these species going extinct. I think it's not the Europeans at all. I think it took place prior to them being there. And Jay? I agree with everyone. I think the contact lens one is science putting in maybe a shaped contact lens that's reshaping your your eyeball or, or whatever. The one about the um, famous people staying famous for a long time, I don't see what the big you know mystery is there. I mean, once you get into the public consciousness, it takes a while for it to go away. So that one, I think, is science as well. So I'm going to agree and with everyone. It's everyone, right? Everyone thinks that the, yes. uh, the one about the birds. Yes. Yeah. So this is either mm-hmm. a clean sweep uh, for us yep. or for you, Dr. What Novella. Is the, what does the die say? The die says it's number one again. Okay. So I guess I'll take this in order. Number one, a new study finds that wearing a special contact lens for even a single night can correct for loss of near vision in adults with presbyopia. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is science. Yay! Woo-hoo. Talk to me about it. So far, How's so it good. work? <laughs> so here's Where can the, you get a prescription? <laughs> it's, it's not as good as you think, Bob. I was a little excited, too, Bastard. when I was reading it. Here's the title of the paper, Refractive Changes from Hyperopic Orthokeratology Monovision in Presbyopes. Sounds exciting. Oh, of course. Yes, it makes perfect sense. So, What religion do you have to be? They they, uh, had subjects wear this special contact lens, which changes the shape of the cornea and corrects for this inability to see near, to focus very close in. It added essentially a diopter to the magnification potential of the cornea. And it just reshapes the cornea temporarily. Uh, but okay, it, it cool. would have a, a an effect even after a single night of wearing it. And you don't wear them during the day. You just wear them when you're sleeping at night. You take them out during the day. You don't wear contacts. But your cornea has changed shape. And then they had them wear it over every night for a week. The effect got a little bit, you know, increased a little bit further towards the end of the week. They also measured the effect in the morning and in the evening. It was greatest in the morning, and it was even wearing off already by the evening, although it it was still there to a significant degree. Sweet. So, that's cool. All right. One day. Get a full day for just a night yeah. when you're asleep. I, but here's the worst part about it. It gives you cancer. It makes you, it it makes you blind in a year. It costs $50,000. Oh, anal leakage. <laughs> Oh, that is the worst. It's yeah. The whole monovision thing. You can oh. only see out of one eye. They're only doing it in one eye be- oh. because it ruins your far vision in that eye. So you have one eye uh. for far vision and one eye for near vision. Oh, forget that. And um, give me the cyborg implants well, for Christ's sake. What do pirates do? Some of these subjects found that a little disconcerting. <laughs> but can't you adjust to that? I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's the sort of thing that your brain could adjust to pretty quickly. Maybe for some people, not for others. So the binocular distance vision was a problem. Uh, so I don't know. It didn't seem that impressive to me once I read the whole study. Uh, the whole mono vision thing didn't, didn't, I didn't like it. Yeah. It's just basically like the end result is you're wearing a permanent reading lens on one eye. You know, that's yeah. essentially mm-hmm. the effect. I think glasses are probably better. But I agree with Jay, there's the cyborg implants. I'll, I'll hold out for those. All right, let's go on to item number two. New research finds that most fame is not fleeting. People who become famous tend to stay famous for years or decades. You all think this one is science. So did I get you all or is it a clean oh. sweep? And this one is science. <laughs> ah, you got it. That's right. You guys totally got me this week. I even tried to make this one a little bit harder. This was hard. You know, it, it, the definition of fame was actually pretty reasonable on this one. They, they were try, they were trying to be reasonable. What they found was they looked at the mentioning of names in newspapers. 
you know, as mm. a measure for fame. So it's not just as, you know, can you recognize, oh, yeah, you're that guy from 20 years ago. Uh, you're it's actually, just, are, people are, are talking being, about you. They're, yeah, they're, you're, they're, people are talking about you in the press. Okay. Um, That's not fairly good What they good found was that the people who got named the most often, let's say, during a period between 2004 and 2009, uh, were already famous. So they, the most people that are being talked about are people that have been famous for a long time. They weren't people who were just famous over a short period of time. What they found was that about 96% of, uh, of people who are famous people who are being talked about have this long-term fame. There are exceptions. You know, that's the 4%. But, but most people the, the, are not fleeting. It's, it's, they develop their fame. And as Jay said, once you get into that, in the public, con- the public consciousness, you tend to stay there. So this, this does, however, go a little bit against previous thinking. You know, the whole 15 minutes of fame concept, you know, was sort of accepted as, as true that there's this constant turnover of people that we consider to be famous. But they found that that's not true. It was actually not a lot of turnover. It's very, the turnover is actually quite slow. That most people have stable fame over a long period of time. Huh. Pretty interesting. Okay. Do you guys want to guess at who the 10 most famous people were in 2004 or 2009 based upon their name appearing most frequently in the media? Um, oh, God. Jackson. Well, probably Michael Jackson? People. Nope. No, he's not in the top 10? No, didn't hit the top 10. Well, do uh, world leaders count? So? They said this this holds up for politics, entertainment, and sports. I don't know. Like, would Bush be in there? So here are the names. Oh. oh. Jamie Foxx, Bill Murray, Natalie Portman, Tommy Lee Jones, Naomi Watts, Howard Hughes, Phil Spector, John what? Malkovich, Adrian Brody, and Steve Buscemi. What? Yep. Wow. <laughs> Those are the Howard two. Hughes? Phil Spector. Howard Hughes, yeah. How is that possible? Murder? Howard Hughes. Like, Phil Spector did there's, there's murder be... his wife, so, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, guess. <laughs> I guess he's really earned his place, but... <laughs> Adrian Brody? <laughs> There's got to be a reason why those people are, are coming up. You know, it could have been a meme about them, something. Right. But they found that they were already in the media three years earlier. So it's, it wasn't yeah. just that that it wasn't just a brief phenomenon. Anyway, mm. let's move on to number three. Researchers analyzing the fossil record find that thousands of Pacific Island bird species went extinct following a first contact with Europeans. You are all correct that this one is the fiction. But which one of you? figured out why this was the fiction. What do you guys think? I liked Evans. Evan nailed it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, it's, yeah. Not the th- it's not the thousands of species. That's accurate. But it was all before first contact with Europeans. It was all in the in the 3,000 years before first contact with Europeans. Yeah, plus 3,000 years is a hell of a long time where you could do where you could do that. Right. It was still, I mean, it, it completely devastated the native populations of, of the Pacific Islands. More than just birds, but, you know, this is, this is what the, the recent survey was looking at most specifically. Prehistoric bird extinctions. And it was greatest, this is not a big surprise. It was greatest in birds who could not fly. It was greatest in birds who mm. were on very few islands as opposed to more islands. Non-flying, non-passerine, seabirds, close to a thousand species just for them alone, but they're going to complete the tally of all land birds and seabirds, which totally numbers in the thousands, but you know, they're, they're still completing the survey. Uh, very interesting. Two, about two-thirds of the populations of these islands went extinct in the period from first human settlement to first European contact. Interesting. Yeah. So the people that we now think of as the, the gentle natives who live at one with nature, though, they completely devastated their environments when they got there. <laughs> right. 
Right. They have to survive too. You know? uh, interestingly, again, just a lot of, a lot of headlines used the dodo as the reference, you know, Which when. Which wasn't in the Pacific Islands? No, it just, it was, that was from Europeans. The dodos went extinct from European oh. hunters. Uh. Not, so the, so this isn't quite the dodo effect. It is in a way in that the dodo is sort of the prototypical bird susceptible to extinction by humans, but the different in that the dodo is post-European and they're talking about purely pre-European contact. Right. Yeah, but from human settlement. So yeah, humans, wherever humans go, extinction of local populations follows. Especially islands are very susceptible, you know, to that because you have lots of, lots of species with small ranges, you know, because um, they each, you know, they, they adapt to their, to their island or small cluster of islands. We are an invasive species. Yeah, right. Absolutely. We're the ultimate invasive species. Absolutely. So good job, everyone. Thought I would get you with this hey. one. Good job, everyone. Uh, good job, everyone. Well done. All right, Jay, finish us up with a quote. This was a quote that was sent in by a listener named Sebastian Beck Watt from Canada. This is Michael Pollan from a book, The, Pot- the Botany of Desire. Very sexual. Design in nature is but a concatenation of accidents, culled by natural selection until the result is so beautiful or effective as to seem a miracle of purpose. Michael Pollins! Right. <laughs> Design <laughs> in nature. Uh, good underwhelmed response. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> yeah, we were whatever, all... Whatever, Michael Pond. <laughs> we were all absorbing hey, it, the moment. It was better than last week's Kierkegaard quote. I'll give him that. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Kierkegaard. No respect. Yeah. I'll tell you. All right, guys. Right. Well, the next two episodes will be are the shows that we'll be recording at Nexus. It's exciting. Yay. Always fun. Always stuff, fun. Very fun. exciting. One live show, one private show. Uh, but that'll be the next two weeks. So, and we'll be seeing you guys next weekend, which will be while this, when this episode goes up, we'll be at Nexus having a good time. Oh, I can't wait, Exciting. man. One of our rare moments when we are all together at the same venue. This will mm-hmm. probably be the only time this year, actually, that we will be at the same place at the same time. Wow. We've got to make the most of it. Absolutely. We're going to go crazy. All right, guys. Thanks for joining me this week. Thank, Thank you, You're Steve. welcome, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.